Hello, and welcome back to Horrific Tales. Before we begin, can I just ask that you like and share these videos to help gain as much exposure for our artists as possible who kindly lend their talents to the show. In this tale, a journalist reflects back in her time during a global pandemic of terrifying proportions. Join us now as we venture into The Splits by M.V. Clark. If ever I was going to kill my mother, that was the moment. That February afternoon, almost 50 years ago, when, lit by the cold winter sun, we met to welcome the new arrival. I had been avoiding Noelle, as I preferred to call her, for as long as I could. But Claire was almost in her 10th month. A date had been set for the four of us to gather, and I couldn't get out of it. The venue was my parents' sitting room, naturally. Noelle didn't like to go out. She sat where she always sat in the middle of the three-seater couch. The fabric was white, with some kind of white clean coating that gave it a slight clamminess. I only knew this from brushing it with my hand. Nobody but her was allowed to sit there, not even Dad. She didn't like the couch getting dirty. Clara and I took the guest armchairs. My sister, a small woman, who looked as if she had a drum stuffed up her jumper, was due in two days' time. Dad perched on her armrest. The sun streamed in through the window behind us warm on my back. I made rippling gold squares on the wall, against which my sister, my father and I appeared as glimmering, gilt flecked silhouettes. I found this pleasing, but the sun was getting in the whale's eyes, causing her to squint. She got up, drew the dark green curtains and the room became a murky pond, then arranging her chignon even though there was no disarrangement, and tucking her skirt underneath her thighs, even though there was nothing to tuck. She sat back down. So began the tea party. We listened to her for about ten minutes as she went through all the terrible things that could happen to Claire, culminating in stories of dead babies delivered to their mother's arms moments after birth. Like something washed up by the sea, cold and grey, she said. For a moment we were all silent, quietly losing our minds, as people say these days. On the table was a plate of party ring biscuits. Brittle discs, ice pink, white and lemon. We all picked one up. There was a snap and a crunch as she bit into it. I just want to be prepared, she said, spitting out crumbs. If you die, or the baby dies, I don't think I could survive, she tilted her head. Oh, and the pain, the pain, you will bellow like a cow being slaughtered. That was the moment. If I'd had a gun, I would have shot her. If I'd had an axe, I would have buried it in her skull. If I'd had a poison apple, I'd have peeled and quartered it and handed it to her on a plate. I seem to remember looking around for a heavy object, something to crack over her head. But, apart from a stack of pictures propped in the corner, there was nothing. Looking back it was just as well. I wouldn't have helped my sister. I settled for rolling my eyes in the direction of Noelle and smiling at Claire. Nothing, I said, is going to happen to you or your baby. This is 1969. We've got surgery, antibiotics, anaesthetics. It's the best it's ever been. Claire smiled back through the gloom. It didn't matter what Noel did when we had each other. I'd always looked after Claire, and I always would. Or so I thought then, at the end of the decade, two days before she gave birth. Now, sitting in my garden in the summer of a new millennium, I know better. The year is 2015, 
I am surrounded by the plants I sowed to remember those I have lost. Blood red roses to my left, snow white anemones to my right. I drink in this red of botanical life. Mindless, but no less alive for that. I think about the splits, and everything is clear at last. Claire's labour was successful, as I predicted. Not without an incident, a problem with the anaesthetic, but nothing went seriously wrong. The baby, Michael, was perfect, with thick red hair and intelligent blue eyes. They seemed perpetually to contemplate the inevitable. I fell for him, I suppose. And from the day they came home, I was with him at every opportunity. I don't know what Martin, her husband, thought about that, but Claire seemed her usual grateful self, more than happy to leave Michael with me while she slept. It's not as if Noel could help. He would lie on my arms like a warm pudding, and I would almost, almost think I'd like a baby of my own. A week later, the splits broke out in New York. It began with Mr. Mitchum, a teacher who went berserk in the middle of the class. I retained the title advisedly, rather than calling him simply Mitchum, as if he was a convict. It is not clear that people with the splits have criminal responsibility for their acts. Their minds have detached from their bodies. Gone someplace. Nobody knows where. No matter what Lupe claims. I didn't take much notice. I thought it was a one-off. I never thought it was a contagious disease, and nor did anyone else. Most newspapers give the incident just one paragraph. These things happen in America, right? There's no account of the classroom in which Mr. Mitchum got sick. I imagine we would have had large windows overlooking a rundown campus, or perhaps one of those wide, busy city streets. There would have been a harsh fluorescent strip light, but there's no record of such details. What is captured is this. Mr. Mitchum was explaining the structure of the atom to a 12th grade science group. He looked unwell. His skin was clammy, and he had an odd rash on his left eyelid. Pallid and grey rather than pink or red. Halfway through describing electrostatic force, he looked down, tilted his head to the side and stopped speaking. A student asked him if he was okay. He turned to her, stared rapidly, and after a moment came out from behind his desk. Suddenly he was right by me, she said afterwards. Most of the class took the chance to chat to their friends, but a few saw what he did next. He snaked forward, too quick for the student to even suspect what he was about to do. She screamed, and then everybody looked. He'd sunk his teeth into her face, and was convulsing with a determination to take a chunk out. He thought she was food, said a witness. He was eating her. The class pulled Mr. Mitchum away, and he seemed to come back to himself, in a fashion. He spat out shreds of the girl's cheek, raised his hands in a gesture of surrender, and mumbled an apology. Then, with the same whiplash speed he had used to pounce on the victim, he twisted out of their grasp. He ran to the door and disappeared into the school. The girl had fallen forward like a ragdoll, but pulling on the floor beneath her desk. Everybody thought she was dead, or dying, until she lifted her hand and put it to the wound. The youngsters took off their sweaters to make soft place in the floor and tenderly let her down. Her eyes were bright, she was very much alive. She was taken to hospital and told she would recover well. But she did, for a while, in a fashion. Police searched the building for over an hour. Eventually they heard an irregular knocking in a cupboard in the basement. A strange translucent liquid was leaking from under the door, as if something was being born inside. When they forced it open, they saw a ghastly sight. It was indeed Mr. Mitchum. Whatever had been on his eyelids had spread to the rest of his body. Patches of raised, purplish skin were peeling away like bark, leaving angry red lesions. These gashes were weeping vast quantities of fluid. 
That's what had been oozing from out under the door. The whole cupboard was sticky with it. He was giving birth to himself as some kind of pain demon, a skinned, melting character of a human form. The rapid dehydration made him gone to the point of emaciation, and yet his strength was almost superhuman. It took ten officers, all of whom later became vectors for the splits, to subdue him, two for his limb and two for his head. I was 23 at the time and racing through my days. I was working full time as a reporter, and, like I say, spending all my time with Claire and Michael, the new baby. There was no time for US news, even when the disease began to spread. First the student who had been bitten, then the police officers, then the people they bit, and on and on. It was a big story, but I wasn't that kind of journalist. My newspaper, the Harangi Tribune, was named after the ward of Harangi, a tiny segment of one city borough. Population, 14,000. I covered the magistrates' court council meetings and road accidents. The salary was tiny, barely enough to scrape by in London. The first time I really paid attention to the splits was about six months later. By then I was at Claire's less often. She seemed to be managing and I got the feeling she and her husband Andy wanted to be left alone. I was spending more time at home, a rented studio flat near Green Lanes. It was August and I remember the flat was stifling. I was by an open window, the blinds half down to keep out the sun, drinking iced lime cordial. I picked up the newspaper and the front page was the disappearance of an airplane on its way to Heathrow. It had crashed in the middle of the Atlantic after a crazed passenger went on a rampage. The report didn't spell it out, but it was obvious that it was wrong with the woman. If one sick person could board a plane to the UK, then so could another. Sooner or later the splits would arrive on British shores. Most of us had seen the infected by then, and photos were on the TV. We knew how the disease was transmitted, and its appalling course. Immediately after the airplane crash, a restrained panic spread throughout the population. Sales of gas masks, knives and bludgeoning sticks soared, as did home security enhancements. But nobody took to the streets. Nobody went on strike over something that was so obviously an act of God. I was afraid too, but I was young, I was busy. I didn't think the situation would affect me. I doubt I would have got so involved in trying to understand the disease if the first attack on UK soil had not been in Harangi. It was winter again, December. Michael was sitting up and crawling. One afternoon at a bus stop, not far from Claire's house, nearly a man bit a young woman in the face. The bus stop was on my patch, so I wrote it up, and that's how I became the paper's unofficial splits correspondent. I have retained a vague, unacknowledged identity as an expert on the disease ever since, but I am sick of the subject now, sick of the splits. Perhaps that's why I like the garden so much. My favourite spot is on the bench at the back, where the winter jasmine climbs. The plants change with the seasons, but they're the same every year. In spring there's a mass purple alliums. In summer there are neat, coiled crimson roses that turn gradually into patterned, faded shadows of themselves. I love these bedraggled beauties so much that I'm reluctant to deadhead them until all the petals are gone. In autumn there's a tumult of Japanese anemones, far more than I intended. They spread by runners which creep shyly across the floor beds when I'm not looking. The plants don't care where the splits came from, or by what magic it turns people into these animated cadavers, these mindless machines. They can't get sick in that way, because they're too simple. No plant prepares a poison apple for its mother. A blood-red rose has no mother. A snow-white anemone has no mind to lose.
Well, we hope that you enjoyed our latest horrific tale. If you want to keep up to date with future episodes, then subscribe to our YouTube channel and like or follow our social media pages. You can also give the channel support by visiting our merchandise store and picking up some of our items. Please also take a moment to support our contributing artists who very kindly lend their talents to the show. Check out the links in the description on how you can do this. Well, that just leaves me to say, until next time my friends, keep it creepy, keep it horrific. <laughs>